I don't think that the project management in that sense is the biggest challenge because once we break ground, you know, we're good. I think that the biggest challenge comes from indecision, not knowing what to do, what should the plan be, and because nobody knows. Um, and so let me relate that a bit to what the book talks about. So I I say in part one that the primary relationship we're interested in in a development is between income and cost. If somebody mm-hmm. says this, I, oh, hey, I developed this building and I'm making a million dollars a year in net operating income. You really don't know how to evaluate that unless you know what it cost them. So did it cost you a million dollars to develop that building, in which case you're getting a 100% return? Or did it cost $100 million, in which case you're getting a 1% return? It's all about that relationship. And this is to get to your question. The main sticking point in, in every development is the relationship between income and cost is complicated. It's not linear. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello and welcome, everyone. I want to thank you for joining this show today. I am extremely excited about our guest today. Ben Stevens not only works as a project manager for a real estate development firm, but he also wrote his own book. It's called The Birth of a Building, and we'll get to that in a bit. He also maintains an online interview series called The Skyline Forum. His story is truly fascinating. He spent his 20s in the nonprofit world in Europe. During that time there, he made friends with several architects. He became engrossed in the theories and ideologies that these architects possessed as it related not only to buildings, but city planning and the built environment as well. One of them suggested he consider doing something with real estate development, and he decided to dive right in. Ever since then, he has pursued his role with development with vigor, but he still maintains his passions for related disciplines such as architecture and urban planning. Late last year, he published his book, The Birth of the Building, which has quickly become one of my favorites on the topics of real estate and construction. He does a great job in discussing the creation of the building from conception to delivery in an easy-to-follow dialogue. His goal was to pull back the veil on the various processes that are required from all of the various disciplines involved to construct a building. I've provided a link to this in the the notes below. So in this episode, we're going to discuss the psychology behind making tough decisions in development, a brief understanding of the complexities involved in the real estate development process, and also how to wrap your mind around modeling and pro forma for real estate development projects. I am excited to dive into this show. So as always, if you have enjoyed the show, Please subscribe to this show and share with all of your friends. There will be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. This was all when the immigrant crisis was just kind of the the huge inflows of of folks um, from Syria and elsewhere into Europe. And as a part of that, I was uh, volunteering in the mornings during the breakfast shift for um, one of these pop-up shelters basically where people for the first day you know would come in 
traumatized and, and so on, and met um, while I was doing that, that was close to my to my apartment in Berlin, I met this great architect. And I had been thinking about doing something different vocationally already. And so he and I met, I started hanging out with him and all of his very cool, trendy architect friends. And then he introduced me to a bunch of even trendier uh, more, more, in, uh, you know, conceptually intense, even than him, um, urban planning friends who were, you know, swinging away and reading cool stuff and, and very historically rooted and so on. So I was trying to decide what I was going to do. And I looked very seriously at studying architecture there in Berlin at the technical university and was also thinking at the same time about moving back to the U S we'd been in Germany for years. So I came across development. I was not entirely sure I think what development was uh, when I started but came across that and decided that I would try to pursue my interests in architecture and planning and all those kinds of things from the development side of the equation even as I retained my interest in them and you know during my MBA I did a independent study semester long on private master planning and so on so I, I tried to retain those interests and um, so went came back and went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison and did an MBA in uh, in real estate, urban economics and real estate finance or something like that. And so that's that was, you know, the, the short version of how my interest got peaked for development and how I got to that school and, you know, got some development jobs after that. And so that's the short version. We can uh, probe further if you want to. Sure. So did the the architecture of the area of, of Berlin? I've I've been before. It's pretty it's pretty crazy the the diversity of the architecture there. Is it? Would you say that helped you or spurred you into more of an interest? Or well, yeah. I mean, Berlin is a very interesting city. I have so on that Skyline Forum, which is kind of a, a legacy project at this point. But I did a whole episode about the history of Berlin's real estate, so I may refer you to that for the, sure. all the details. But um. I was just primarily interested in the extremely high quality level to which they build um, their their engineering standards and so on. Now, what I know now is that it's prohibitively expensive, <laughs> completely prohibitively expensive. And then there's that there's that balance between do you build the perfect building or do you build the building which can be used economically you know it the idea that every every structure that we build should be a platonic ideal coming down from heaven um, there's you know there's um limits to to how much space you can build and who can use them if you do that nonetheless though uh better to start you know with a really high standard and 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 sure. come back down to earth than to assume you're going to do things uh to a lower standard. So that was a big part of Berlin. Um, what was also a big interest uh, with Berlin is that when, you know, so this is kind of a tangent on Berlin, but Berlin's super interesting. So when yeah. the, when world war two was over, both sides were like annihilated and East Berlin, you know, was going to be it on a stick if you were in the Eastern system. And so they started rebuilding and, and, it was astonishing, actually, how fast they rebuild, you know, hundreds of thousands of apartments. But it was its own thing. And the West had a problem. Like, how do you get people to stay in West Berlin? West Berlin was a walled-in city. Right. It wasn't like it wasn't like West West Berlin was the beginning of West Germany. It was an island. 
You had to take a highway for hours just to get there, and then you were in a, you know, a soup bowl. So how do you get people to stay there? You like subsidize their income. They don't have to be in the draft, all this stuff. So it, it led to this really kind of um, uh, trendy kind of group of people who would want to live in West Berlin. When the wall fell, everything was different. Right. Everybody wanted to get out of East Berlin. And what happened then, this is interesting kind of from a – from a title commitment perspective, <laughs> none of the buildings in East Berlin belonged to anybody. Right. When the East German government fell, the downtown of the nation's capital was kind of up for grabs. <laughs> and so people would just start go squatting and be like, this right. is my building. Yeah. And they talk about the roaring 90s and so on. And um, so, so then West Berlin just kind of emptied out. People started going and taking property in East Berlin. What's interesting, though, is a lot of people did this, started speculating, like, oh, this is going to be a thing. But there was too much to speculate on. There was way too much product. It wasn't like there was one street. It was many square miles that had been neglected, you know, for a super long time. And it takes a while. Real estate development is downstream of economics. It took a while for the economic engine to get going in East Berlin. Anyway, so for all those reasons, I mean – yeah, it's hard to think of a city which would be more interesting from a real estate perspective, urban planning. They're still filling in the areas where the wall was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, super interesting place to kind of get interested in all of this. Right. So that kind of the excitement of meeting those people, oh, yeah. being around it, all of the the idea that you were going to kind of pivot. You know, you had that in your mind. So that kind of directed right. you. Interesting. Yes. Lots of people have had... A, epiphanies and made life pivots in berlin that's uh, yeah. kind of where, where you go to do that kind of thing gotcha <laughs> so you went to madison i went to madison yeah and so when i got there i was excited that i had gone into development but as i've mentioned in some other interviews i was a bit upset that i wasn't going to get to study architecture and i wasn't gonna, you know i was like learning revit you know my first year right. when i should have been learning excel you know and <laughs> I was studying a bunch of stuff that really wasn't in the scope, at least of what that degree program was about. So as I as I went through the program, sought out opportunities where I could be more interdisciplinary. Um, the peak of which was this event that I hosted in my last semester. When I was working with one of the real estate clubs there, and it was called the birth of a building. And mm-hmm. so I brought in the chief of urban planning, the architect I had worked with on a project, and the contractor I had worked with on a project. And we all talked about this one development we've been involved in. Everybody had 15 minutes. And so at the end of the night, we'd talk for an hour, hour and a half from 360 degrees. And I just thought that was really interesting and yeah. unique. Um, so I, when I graduated, and that's kind of a segue to the book, I started working on a book of that same name, The Birth of a Building. And that was what was the, kind of the genesis of the writing project, having had that experience and seeing that that was unique and enjoyable to to get it from all angles right definitely and i finished that book probably about three weeks ago oh cool i really enjoyed it i said i'm a civil engineer by trade right right so typically i see a few pieces of that puzzle but to see some of that that doesn't necessarily get talked about as much it was really interesting so i want to appreciate you for uh Oh yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Not easy. 
<laughs> it was it was two years. You know, I probably could have done a building in the same time. So <laughs> it was two years. But you know, and we can talk about um, uh, in a bit. That's that's one. You know, you had mentioned talking about hurdles that you faced. Like that's one of the hurdles. Um, not having any context. Um, you know, so you said you know when we were talking about what we would discuss. What are some of the hurdles that you face when you're trying to start doing development and not having context for what all these meetings are about is the right. number one that comes to my mind because, you know, my first internship was uh, the closeout of this $40 million mixed use grocery anchored retail and, and multifamily thing. And you're in the first meeting is like, you know, we used a VRF HVAC here, you know, so that has this consequence. You're like, right, right. What's it? What's a VRF? And then it's like, uh, you know, the next deal, what do you think about the valuation strategy that we use in this ground lease? And you're like, let me, let me give that some thought, you know, and it's like, yeah. oh, they need the incumbency certification for the closing packet. What is an incumbency certification? Because in your training, even when you do, you know, when you quote unquote go the real estate route, you learn financial modeling, you learn urban economics, and I guess that's the way it should be, but there's so many different things. It's, it's, uh, it's very daunting and I think, you know, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was that there's there's because there are very few people who do development, it hasn't generated its own like literature in the same way. There's sure. there's a few books out there, but I did some rough math this morning as I was thinking about this. And I based on the population of Chicago and the number of accountants in the America, there are almost 20,000 accountants in Chicago. And so they have programs for studying it and training and courses. And it's just, it's a known quantity, right? but uh, pun intended, right? Accounting yeah. is a known quantity, <laughs> but, but I bet there aren't seven, 800 people who do development in Chicago. The firms right. are tiny. And so then they just don't, they don't develop a lot of resources about it. And even if you did, where do you start? Um, and, and, and when you get into firms, you know, you'd think there was a big training program. Not usually, because they're no. very entrepreneurial, small shops. I mean, very one of the lean. big – Very lean. I mean, one of the, you know, skyscraper developer groups, they might have eight or ten people on the actual development team, and they're busy. So where yeah. do you learn it? You know, and so that was – the book certainly just scratches the surface. But for your listeners, it's divided into two parts. So part one is, um, you know, the birds and the bees. Why do people make buildings? So that's finance and and so on. And part two is pregnancy and delivery. You know, uh, once this building, once it looks like, okay, yeah, this should happen, how do you actually bring it into the world? And that's where we start looking at acquiring land and design and engineering and approvals and all of those uh, sorts of things. Right, right. And that's what I really liked about it is because I'm usually – in the conception phase <laughs> yeah, or past right. the conception phase. And, That's right. And you're talking more about uh, the actual conception, the early start, the, uh, the, the planning that goes into it. And that's, that's what right. I, I really enjoy, but being able to break that out. And I really did enjoy, you, you were talking about barriers to entry and the jargon. Uh, you, you did a, a real good job of trying to catch those things you know, right. like not assuming everybody understands That's what right. certain jargon is and and putting cliff notes in there. I thought that right. was great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the jargon, the jargon. Yeah, it's just it's not helpful. And, and I think there's a certain amount of uh, kind of guard your 
it's a way of throwing down, you know, like, do you know what all these, what do these acronyms yeah. mean? Like, no, I don't. But the, the other side of the coin is that a developer has to be involved in so many different things that they can't possibly, you know, do you know what a, a loamer is? I'm working on a loamer right now. Well, you know, so we're re, we're moving the floodway. Well, how on earth would I know what that means? A so letter I guess of map revision. That's right. Uh, <laughs> and the clomer is coming first, the conditional yeah. letter of map revision. So how would anybody know that? And um, and I I tried because I'm still very much learning myself. I tried to let a, some of that self-deprecation come through because it's very intimidating. And there has to be a balance, obviously, when you're leading a project that that um, you're bringing that expertise. But I think a lot of people have to fake it for a very long time because you don't go into the job knowing anything like what you need to know to make informed wise decisions about some of the stuff that really will make a difference right. it's just uh and so we can we can we can talk more about that yeah so i guess let's talk about specific developments that you've been involved in and some of those those hurdles that you faced in in developments themselves like uh, maybe some that stick out in your mind and yeah and, yeah and just kind of go into a little detail about of course, of course. So um, the first, you know, internship I had was more mid-rise stuff, you know, 15 stories. And there was that one I mentioned, there was a an office building across the street. There was a big assembly. So that was um, in Madison and bigger projects. And then when I graduated, I took a job with a development firm that had actually been started by a civil engineer and so there was a lot of land stuff. We did a lot of subdivisions. Um, and so that's its own thing, you know, mm-hmm. that I didn't know anything about. It's also for sale, which is different than rental. Mm-hmm. So you don't have the kind of the, the same um, income stream. We did a, I was involved with a hotel there, that, you know, and to be fair, you, you said something in one of your questions in your email about the time that you first managed your own development i have been involved in all stages of development but a development takes three to five years and i've only Mm -hmm. been out of school for just about three so i haven't had a single project where from the moment it was conceived until like it was stabilized and we perm refinanced i was the guy you know that takes actually a long time and you'd be at at one firm for a long time sure but um in, in talking about the challenges, and so and now I do residential, primarily uh, affordable at the firm that I'm at right now, affordable housing. Um, as I think about the challenges, each of them had challenges, and and there are challenges in each of the different sections. So in the book, I talk about forecasting, land, um, design, approvals. Each of them had challenges in each of those I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know where to start. There could be a whole episode just about funny stories. <laughs> um, I, I would say that, you know, as you're thinking about your question, you know, how do you how do you try to avoid having the schedule and the budget derailed? A lot of it goes back to the point you just made that so much of what I'm involved in is like. So there's execution, like how do you keep it on track, which is project management, the schedule and the budget. And I don't want to minimize the challenges there. Uh, but a lot of those are challenges for my architect engineer contractor. Sure. You know, if there's a delay in the window shipment or if somebody measured wrong on the survey, like obviously I'm going to have to get involved, but largely that's their problem that I need them to solve. I'm their right. client and we're, you know, and so they are coordinating that. Um, I would say that 
in each of the projects, including a one I was working on today, I don't think that the project management in that sense is the biggest challenge because once we break ground, you know, we're good. I think that the biggest challenge comes from indecision, not knowing what to do, what should the plan be, and because nobody knows. Um, and so let me relate that a bit to what the book talks about. So I I say in part one that the primary relationship we're interested in in a development is between income and cost. If somebody mm-hmm. says this, I, oh, hey, I developed this building and I'm making a million dollars a year in net operating income. You really don't know how to evaluate that unless you know what it cost them. So did it cost you a million dollars to develop that building, in which case you're getting a 100% return? Or did it cost 100 million, in which case you're getting a 1% return? It's all about that relationship. And this is to get to your question. The main sticking point in, in every development is the relationship between income and cost is complicated. It's not linear. Mm-hmm. So if I said finish this sentence, when costs go up, income goes up, right? Well, you can't answer. I mean, <laughs> right, right, right. It, 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 and so, you know, sometimes the money spent will raise the rent. Sometimes right. it won't, or at least not enough to outweigh the cost increase. And so to make a good decision, you have to know what the effect of your decision is going to be. And sometimes it's just impossible. Right. Um, I'll give you an easy example. So like the question that a friend of mine brought up recently um, it was more of a question for 10 years ago when people were making this change. If you go from eight foot to nine foot ceilings in an apartment, that will increase the costs and it will increase the revenue. Okay. How much will it increase the costs? That's almost impossible to calculate. I mean, think about how many different people you would have to have look at their plans really closely again and give you two different versions based on how many lineal feet of pipe. It would be extremely hard to calculate. Um, and then, okay, how much is it going to increase the rent? Well, how would you even answer that? How would you even know? It's not even, Most people would, wouldn't even notice it. Maybe they'd feel it. But to right. look at two buildings in your city, one had eight feet ceilings, one had nine feet ceilings, there's a ton of noise. Maybe one's older. Maybe one's in a better spot. It's almost impossible to say how much it's going to increase the revenue. Right. So now come back to the relationship. Right. Yeah. Come back to the relationship. We don't know how much it's going to increase the costs. We don't know how much it's going to increase the revenue. We certainly don't know which is going to win out. And the team is sitting there waiting for like, okay, what do you want us to do? And they can advise you like, well, if we do the nine foot, we're going to use four and a half foot tall drywall and put two of them have one seam. They can tell you how to optimize, but there are like 30 other factors. And right. the, you know, I'm, the, the income and, and cost are kind of the the overwhelming uber categories but even those have many many subparts and so i could tell you funny stories about any one development and (laughs) it's like how do we convince the utility company to do this and those are like those are you know for for a funny memoir but the real difficulty in development in my limited experience is indecision when you just don't know it is like impossible to know and right. some, you know, eight, nine foot ceilings is not a big deal, but like there's other decisions that are very consequential. And so getting your head around, th- this is the whole thing that I'm researching right now because I, I, I wrote that book, you know, right. I know how to financial model that doesn't make me any more equipped to decide whether I do eight or nine foot ceilings or some equivalent decision. And, and so that's really, you know, um, that's not fun. People will say you're never going to figure it out. You know, it's so complicated. 
Yeah, but you still have to make a decision. That's the right. thing. Yeah, from from a from from an abstract theor- theoretical perspective, no, you won't get resolution. And they're not thinking that they have to find resolution. They just need right. me to tell them what to do. Right. But I, in my mind, <laughs> have to decide what to do. And it's like, which way am I going? So sure. we can we can um, probe that a bit more if you want to. But that for me, and we can talk. I can tell you some silly stories. But that's that's the thing that I think nobody. Nobody told me going into it that there's no model that can compute all those things for right. you. True. And and it's a complexity theory thing. Like it can't – we can visualize two dimensions. We can visualize three dimensions. But once it becomes something where there's so many dimensions, where do you, how do you make that decision? Right. There's a lot in there. You don't always know what the potential, uh, like you said, return on investment is. For every decision that you make, I mean that's right. that's essentially what you're saying is it, you're looking at everything from a point of return on investment because mm-hmm. that's that's your goal mm-hmm. ultimately is to make sure you return somebody's investment and and on top of that you know mm-hmm. make sure they get a return um, and so are these decisions I mean they all add up too. You know, mm-hmm. you, you're talking yes. about one. Exactly. One piece, there's many. But there's many. Yeah. And so how to calculate all that. It's, ex- it's seemingly exac- in, right. yeah, impossible, but it's exacerbated by the fact that there's a really acute information problem. Uh, so like there was a development in California I was working on. And just as an example, um, California is a mess, uh, full stop. But this happened to be like on the side of a mountain. Um, and so we were going to have to have like 40 caissons and it was going to be intense. Whether we did 20 units or 100 units or 200 right. units. And, and there's questions about like, well, what if we, should we shrink the building or expand it to make, to make the economics work better? Um, and then you're like, I can't have, the contractor bid five versions of this right? or or even estimate five or six versions of this. So if you imagine that for every development, there's some kind of a curve about like, this would be the perfect project. Now the curve is an illusion because it's made up of 30 components, but let's say in the final analysis, there was some curve. I get at best like two data points to discern what that curve is. Now Mm -hmm. you're not doing, you're not considering a one-story building and a skyscraper on the same parcel, so that that narrows it somewhat. But when you're when you're at this point of like, gee, this doesn't work. Should I add a floor and then change the structural system to this other thing, or should I do this? Is really not always possible mm-hmm. to ask your design team to come up with all those scenarios, then have all your people price all of them to give you that five different data points for you to even begin to discern where that curve is. Right. It's not fair to them. So then you're like, I got one more shot to, I, I'm telling you as somebody recently at, you know, I'm about three years into school, like um, how you, how you do this as somebody not wanting to waste other people's time. I am experiencing it at least as an acute data problem that I really don't think goes away whatever project system you use 
because no. it's just not efficient for anybody in any project delivery system to spend all of their time mapping out scenarios for you for a building which they aren't sure is going to move forward. Right. And it comes back to what I call the call me early paradox. The call me early paradox is I want I as a civil or I as a anything, I want to be involved as early as possible to give you my input if you know this is going to move forward. Well, I'll tell you the catch. I can't know right. if it's going to move forward unless you're involved. And so I want you involved, but if I call you too often and ask for too many iterations, you're going to decide that I'm in like that 80-20% that's you know taking 80% of your time but 20% of your business, and this isn't right. this isn't worth your time. So um, that's where a lot of my research is right now, trying to understand the different you know the HVAC system is a cost item. It also affects the efficiency. It also affects the quality, maybe if people perceive that, you know, Potential, noisiness. Yeah. But so that's kind of a bundle of three different things. Uh, even, even that's a very complicated relationship. But if you can take all of the things that constitute revenue, all the things that constitute expenses, all the things that constitute costs and neural network kind of cluster them into different groups and say these these are related, these are related, these are related. That's the mm. only way that I know of kind of chipping away at it and and starting to get your bearings. I was going to say, I was going to ask what your thoughts were of people making those decisions, uh, you know, like yourself. Does it just come down to intuition and experience and a little bit of input from your design team? Is Well, if I go to the design team, so perfect example, like none of us do a million projects in our career. Most of us do pick, – pick a number. <laughs> and, and so – if I ask three civil engineers how they would handle this, I may get different answers just based on their experience. Now, <laughs> or I may get different answers like so so and so GC says you should do this as a such and such. You should do this as light gauge steel. Is your brother-in-law a light gauge steel contractor? Like, yeah. I don't know why I'm being pointed in that direction. This is the thing that further complicates the picture. The the advice that I'm getting from an architect or a GC or an engineer may let's assume it's 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 their genuine best suggestion it may just be their best suggestion because it's all they've kind of that's been uh, the main thing they've done or it may be their best suggestion because they know somebody you know they, they have some personal connection to it who knows you know and so that that um i don't i don't mean to to only end your questions with questions but <laughs> i think it's underappreciated how theoretically complicated it is to arrive at a at a design because because um you know yeah i it's just it's just i yeah. i come away from the whole thing quite humbled about it and uh <laughs> and and thinking that i have a lot more research to do specifically about that physical side of it right well there is so many like you said there's so many factors that play into every decision from the beginning on um it's hard to calculate and so i i would just it's like hard to assume... i find myself sitting there having to do it somehow right right yeah yeah i would assume it's uh you, you just gotta it's gotta be intuition that's all i got i don't know well that's how a lot of people operate right yeah and and so then the question is 
do you operate under intuition and act like you're certain? That's what that's I, because because these things they require charisma, right? If you're gonna get this thing going, it's got to be like, oh, this is the dude or this is the lady. Like right. they know what to do. Well, probably that's gonna be seen through unless you're you know a real savant. <laughs> so I think it's a delicate balance of and and uh, that that's to, to bring it back to the book and so on. I think there's a lack of I think there's a lack of training that is interdisciplinary mm-hmm. and and maybe there aren't enough people who do this to make it worthwhile. I'm doing it because I have to study it myself to to make these decisions. But um, but I think uh, uh, I'll let you know when I figure out exactly <laughs> how to make that decision every time. I don't like making decisions from intuition. And yeah. and so I think that's where where it's a you don't. You can't track all 30 factors at once, but there's a few bundles of five factors right. that you basically understand. And I mean, I've used the example of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So uh, average loaf of bread has 12 slices, uh, has 24 slices so that, you know, that's 12 sandwiches. But a jar of jelly and peanut butter are usually like 50 servings. That tells me that, you know, 20 increments of 24 sandwiches is a pretty good way if you're in the PB&J production business. Make them in increments of 24. You know, learning those kinds of rules of thumb about a bunch of different things and trying to then line them up side by side and saying, I see what looks like an efficiency here if we do this. It's the same on the operating side. Like anything less than 90 or 100 department units is difficult to staff, you know, in full time ways. So and then, you know, anything less than 10 million in an equity investment is difficult from an institution. So all those things overlap and you just try to discern. Usually what you discern is about the size deal that you usually see everywhere. And even if those people can't explain exactly why they did it that size, it naturally took that shape because that just kind of what works best for everybody. Yeah. It was seemingly successful. So people repeated. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Interesting. So what, uh, you mentioned it, but, um, how do you analyze the risks in each of your projects that you start? I, yeah. You know, risks can take the form of anything from entitlements to, mm-hmm. uh, well, what goes along with entitlements is surrounding property owners, uh-huh. you, you know, contractors, yep. everything. How do you, All how do you analyze? Stuff. Yeah. Depends on what, you know, so a lot of it is how well do you know that market? That's the, I would say that's the main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a market you don't know and there's real entitlement issues or there's real neighbor issues, you don't know who to call, you know, like all of that increases the the complexity exponentially. Um, yeah, I mean, you just go through the list. I mean, just go. I just go down the list. So forecasting, like, what have the rents been like? Um, what kind of what kind of operating issues am I going to have in terms of different energy things and compliance. Um, what's the local vacancy rate? What's the pipeline? Those are your kind of forecasting issues on the land side. Like any concern about rock, any concern about contamination of my downhill from a gas station, you know, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, on the design side, you have to know that city's building, you know, regime. Like you can almost, it's almost impossible to build anything with 
dimensional lumber in Chicago. Don't ask. I mean, we had the oh. fire, but I mean, drywall is fire rated, so I don't know why yeah. that really is required. So you really have to understand what's your, what is your risk, you know, from a code perspective, as you mentioned, the neighbors, all of that stuff. Um, from you know where are you where are you getting your money how much how many strings are they going to have attached uh, and and perhaps most importantly what is the pre-development timeline and potential cash outlay and how soon are you going to have to spend that money mm-hmm. when is it going to quote unquote go hard and all these things um those are the things to look at and and the developers who i know uh, the most experienced people talk about I'm not going to start spending money until. Right. So I think that's really how they think about it. Um, so, I mean, each one of those, any of those things can kill a deal, I suppose, you know, if they're bad enough. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but in, in the affordable business, you know, we, we, every state every year issues this list of kind of, it's like playing twister, you know, they want it to be close to this or close to that. And so, we kind of make a map right. and and literally in GIS I'll put down all those different criteria and look for overlaps. Yeah. And it's like, gee, that would probably win an award. In in our case, we don't have to put in equity in the actual transaction, but the catch is that we, you know, have a ton of pre development and in some senses I'm not sure it's any safer now now that I've been doing it a while. So it's it's mostly those kinds of things. Do you have a good relationship with an architect and an engineer? Who, whom you've fed enough business in the past and who know that you are dependable for business in the future such that they might be able to do some free work for you in sizing right. this thing up. That's, you know, that's different for somebody who's just starting out than it is for a firm who has sent Jones Carter, you know, its last <laughs> 25 projects. Right. So that, that, that has, that has a, a bearing, I suppose your staff, you know, like who's leading the project. Um, Can be. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, and, and the asset, <laughs> and the asset class. Have you done that kind of a building before? Um, all of them, you know. So yeah. it, it, I think, I think, uh, you go into it knowing your competencies and knowing what you, what you don't know, and that is as much of an intuition gut call as anything, though. Uh, right. Nobody knows. Do you have your own physical list, or how does how does that work? Is it something? Uh... Um, I, th- I think about it, you know, so the way that I organize the book in those, in those sections, anytime I'm thinking about anything that has to do with real estate, I think through those sections basically, um, because it's not one thing. I'll put it mm-hmm. that way. Any, 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 any one of those things can, can do it in. So I guess I, I couldn't zoom in on on one that matters the most. The thing that I guess I'd, I'd be universally most worried about is if people overstate the revenue or understate the expenses in a multifamily development, the expenses are going to be 38% of, you know, OPEX. And if we say this one's going to be 28, it's probably not. <laughs> uh, and, and so to the extent that you, you want to start with the rents and the expenses and say this Here's okay. So here's here's how I've thought about it, and it's one of the ironies in the way that we do we do feasibility studies. At the beginning of the project, if an architect gives me a box of air 
this is the box of air based on the zoning and and what we think we can get in terms of height and so on. And maybe they sketch out how many what the units are in residential. Maybe they don't, and I just say it's 85% efficient. Mm-hmm. I can use that to calculate what I'm going to call the rocket fuel for this development. Like, I know how much I'm going to have to pay on a loan and to pay investors. That is enough for me to know how much this project can cost. Like, it's if you imagine the rocket fuel, I know how big the rocket can be. Right. I know how big this thing can get into orbit. You can build the Saturn V, right. but I can put one of those smaller SpaceX rockets into orbit with this money. Unfortunately, that's not how we do a project you know it's like gc go out and spend three weeks and come back and tell me what the cost is it's irrelevant right. i know the cost can be for any project that's actually going to happen in reality right my pre- my preference uh, which has has gone unheeded my preference would be to say mr gc or ms gc this building costs 25 million dollars this is what i'm I gonna bit i'm gonna bid it out to f- three five people Here's the spec list in order of priority. I want you to bid this by drawing a line as far down this spec as you can. And I'm going to pick the person who will go to contract with me saying that for $25 million, they will accomplish this spec down to this level. That is not the way it's done. (laughs) I I had a project in one state, and I basically did that because there was a cost cap in that state. They said, you can't spend more than this. So I just gave it to the GC and said, give me a thumbs up or thumbs down if this is possible. And he said, that's an easy answer. Thumbs down. <laughs> well, hey, you know, like that that saved us a lot of time, didn't it? Right. I didn't need to spend three weeks with that. So so um, the biggest risk, though, I think, is overstating the revenue because that is the thing that is the most out of your control. People right. aren't just going to either have more money or be willing to part with more money mm-hmm. just because it's more it's more expensive than you thought to build it. So start with it's the first thing on the on the income statement for a reason. Start with the revenue. That's pretty easy. It's publicly available. You know, Uh look at your competition and any broker or property manager can tell you what your expenses are going to be, you know, either per square foot or per unit or something. And the vacancy rate is is pretty well known. Now you have the rocket fuel. Yeah. And you can use that to calculate what the building can cost. Any deviations from that? Or at your own risk. Right. Right. And that's that's what we're dealing with a lot here in mostly Dallas, but also Fort Worth, is the revenues that that they're projecting are just outrageous and um, probably not sustainable. And I, I think, you know, we're going to see some real issues with that is, um, you know, the projections. I mean, obviously, rent growth has been insane recently. Yes over the last you know since the last recession and uh you know the projections are straight line mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in talking to to several of the developers in the area well uh, if something happens like this this uh, recent event hypothetically speaking if hypothetically, the whole nation shuts down right and you know 10 million people lose their jobs and, and everything um you know that makes these diff are these deals a lot more difficult to pencil. So I guess how on these projections, what is that? How much risk do you put into a projection to, I mean, I guess that's on a per developer basis, but are, are they optimistic or is it uh, fairly conservative? I guess personally, what, 
What do you, have you seen? Let me answer that question uh, in a slightly different way. Okay. You know, people run sensitivity analysis and they say, oh, if the rent is 5% less than we thought or 5% more or whatever. And I don't know. I, I guess that's worthwhile. I've always found that kind of – I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. Like I what, I what I think is maybe more interesting and is more of a gut check is make a model – based on a couple of hours of research about the rents. Save it, draft one, and then just go about your business and do what you're doing, and you know every day you have a new draft. At the end of that, as you've adjusted things to make it work and all these things, go back and look. And what was the rent when you started this? You know, like, before you started, say, well, you know, we could probably squeeze this, we could probably do that. Like, what was it then? And And I call that like a... A cell, a, like a, a kind of in your head sensitivity test because it's not pe- people's preferences aren't shifting as as your need for the revenue to to change shifts so I guess I guess yeah it'd be that that look I mean what what percentage am I above you know what's in the market what did, can my property manager look at me in a straight with a straight face and say we're going to achieve this and um so, I don't, yeah, I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> no, and, that's you know, perfect. In, in affordable, you know, our rents are basically set for us, so sure. it's less of an issue. But on the market side, I, I, I think you could tell my, you know, tell your mom, I want to do an apartment building in this area. Do you think I can get twenty two hundred a month? And she looks and she's like, dear, you know, the rents are all <laughs> like fourteen fifty there. I just don't know if this. It's it's not all that academic of an exercise. Right. Just saying. How feasible is it that I'm going to get double digit? Now, if you're bringing a totally different product to the market, or you're doing something really revolutionary, but that's very rare. Right. right. And I think we've we've established kind of what the high point is for Class A A residential or or whatever it is. <laughs> like if if the first the first cross laminated timber building in Dallas, they're going to get whatever rent they want. Right. But unless it's something like that. I'd be very concerned about projecting, you know, those those rents that are that are way way out of the norm. Right. That's interesting. I appreciate the uh, honesty on the topic. <laughs> it's always it's always made me curious on that. But I think uh, your idea of before the project really takes off, what do you think is yes. possible before costs? start coming in and, and, and then you start seeing what it what it really is going to cost and then um, I think that's a good gut check for sure right right so wh- what advice would you give somebody that's trying to get into a development um, real estate development maybe with a firm uh-huh. um, not necessarily on their own but with, with a firm right uh, you guys uh, most real estate development firms run very lean. Yes. Uh, so it's it's difficult. But, yes. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would assume that they're reading as much as they can. Um, that's like necessary. Um, and there are some key books you want to spend time with. So, but assuming you're doing that, the most important thing I would say is study the people who need space. Study the actual the customer, because you know to take the examples of assisted living, retirement communities, and self storage. Those are blockbuster 
asset <laughs> classes that did not exist 50 years ago. And they they came into existence and rose to prominence because somebody was actually thinking about what do we need that we don't have? That's the easiest way to make money. Right. Not fighting the next guy to have a class AA plus Similar building. Product. But to right. come up with that's where real opportunity is. And so whether you're doing it on your own or with somebody, understanding that I think is is very valuable. Um you alluded to independent versus career track. Those are really different. Right. And on the career track, like, as you said, there's very, very few jobs. Um, and it's just, I mean, it, I, I, I won't pretend that that's easy. And, and, and even, you know, I, I studied and, um, and it was competitive getting the one that I have, and I'm sure it'll be competitive wherever I go. And so I, I guess if somebody's in that position, I would say, Plan to do it on your own. Don't feel like you have to ask permission. Asking permission sucks. That's the reason a lot of people <laughs> go into development because they don't want to work with somebody. Plan or strategize as if you're going to do it on your own at some point. And there's great resources like the Incremental Development Alliance and so on are groups of people who who kind of plan on that. And and so don't don't make it an either or. Either I'm going to get a career at a large development shop or I'm going to you know not do it at all. A related thing is you have to know where you want to live, and I have learned this the hard way. There's a few main places where development shops are, New York, Chicago, Atlanta, Dallas, uh, San Francisco, maybe Seattle, Mm -hmm. and some places that I want to live don't have a lot of those big shops because if you're a big organization, and by big I mean 10 people, Mm -hmm. if you're a big organization – you got to have a lot of stuff kind of right there in the area. Right. Otherwise, you just do it from a different office. You know, you fly into that town and do the project. And it's a tricky balance. So you need to know where you want to live. It's not to say that there aren't developers in smaller towns, but like in Madison, there's just a handful of people. Sure. I don't know. Maybe there's 25 people in that town doing real estate development, you know, at scale. So then your job pool is just microscopic. Right. Um, lastly, I would say be aware that many people in development are jerks there's a it's not a secret it's not you it's the industry there are lots of reasons it's a i would say it's a it's a downside to working in this business um a lot of it is because if you you have you have to have money to sign guarantees and do those things and so you're you're primarily dealing with very wealthy people who as we all know are the most charitable uh emotionally intelligent out there that's not to say that there aren't really um fantastic developers you know and and i i know lots of amazing human beings who are in development nonetheless just be aware that it's probably like in the vc world there's plenty of vcs i think who are kind of jerks and so it that's a that's a a kind of a uh, an occupational hazard that <laughs> but but to bring it back to what we've been talking about those people are they have to have a certain amount of certainty, whether they should have it or not. Right. They wouldn't be doing what they were doing if they weren't a bit overconfident. Sure. So learning how to interact with people who are overconfident is something that I suppose we all have to deal with. Sure. But, uh, yeah. but it, it's, it's certainly something that comes up in development. But if, you, if you're studying space and people and listening to what people need and you're saying, I'm going to do this whether I do it for some shop or on my own – I'm reading as much as I can and 
and I can and I can you know work with anybody. Well, you know, you know, get out of your way then. That's that's yeah. gonna you know that's gonna be exciting. That's awesome. Can we go back to the books real quick? Please, please. Um, a uh, like I said, I read your book. I I trying to read as much as I can. So yes. always taking recommendations. So yes, you have two or three that you want to. Sure, sure. Point out. Um, let me look on my. Uh, hang on, while we're doing this, because yeah. I, ha- I have a list on. Are you a good reads person, or are you uh, you have no, your own list? No, not really. I mean, there's not a. Let's see. Depends on what you're reading about. So, if you just want to love buildings, I would read a place of my own. It's about Michael Pollan. He just built this shed in his backyard, and it's just it's just, you know, I'm gonna read it again soon. It's just a lot <laughs> of fun. Um, in architecture, you know, 101 things I learned in architecture school, or uh, Vitol Rybchensky's How Architecture Works. Mm-hmm. The Smart Growth Manual is good. Pattern Language is good. Um, I just finished reading The Architect's Studio Companion, which is kind of a reference work, but it's really insightful. Sure. I'm reading um, Francis Ching has this whole series, Building Code Illustrated and so on. You know, If you want to really get into the weeds, you can do that. Yeah. There's a, a history of structural engineering, which is fascinating. Um, Buildings, 3,000 Years of Design. If you're into bigger stuff, there's a book called The Heights, The Anatomy of a Skyscraper, which is just it's good for systems. I if I do a sequel yeah. to if I do a sequel to The Birth of a Building, it will be about design and constructions and then and the problems that we just mentioned because construction is a family of disciplines. Just sure. like medicine, you know, yeah. EMTs and nurses and radiologists are all doing very different things, as are all the people in construction. So I'd say it's hard, it's hard to find a good construction book. Um, mm-hmm. There are a thousand pages. They're kind of written like a reference work. So I guess it just depends on what people are looking for. But but um, I have a list. Yeah, I'll send you. I have a list here. On yeah. What else do I have? Um, I'm in, re- you know, I'm, I'm in residential. So there's 6,000 Years of Housing is a great book. Oh. Multi, multi-unit housing since 1850. I mean, there's so many. Uh, you you kind of have to pick a, a, a identify your questions, you know. And that's right. one of the things I talk about at the end of the birth of a building. When somebody reads this, go back through and say, what do I understand the least here? Right. If you if you understand the law the least, you know, there's uh, examples and explainers on real estate transactions. It's very plain spoken. If you really want to beef up on, you know, that. Just go hog wild. If you oh, yeah. if you feel like you have a basic running start, then don't spend your effort there. You know, I would spend your effort on on that stuff that you just ask yourself, in which situation would I be the most embarrassed by my complete <laughs> lack of knowledge? Right. And start reading about that. Right. Because it's more about covering your unknown unknowns than being a master. Sure. Yeah, I've got uh so I've got uh, several pages here that are rabbit-eared. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, I, you know what? I think a lot of the recommendations are in there, actually. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll go back through. Yeah. Just, um, you know, I'll go I go through, and I was like, wow, this is I, – I knew about this, but not, not, you know, not the intricacies of certain things. And, and you – 
you kind of brought up topics that I didn't even think about trying to learn more about. So that, that was interesting. And, and, uh, you know, my Amazon bookshelf grew a little bit. So, sure. <laughs> sure. so, so you, what you said you've been out for three, three years ish. Yes. Okay. Yes. What do you think has made you successful where you're at in this last three years? Um, what, what, Maybe if you could condense it down to one skill or one ideal. I guess I would question the premise of the question. I'm not sure I'm successful in real estate development yet. I, I you know, sure. I'm successful in my family and I'm in having some success writing about development, but I've been writing and having my family for much longer than three years. <laughs> um, I would say that um, development, you know, is is just it's almost like a synonym for entrepreneurship. So you're never like an expert entrepreneur. Right. It's more about managing your risk, which is stuff that we've talked about. Um, and it's more about, was I successful at this project or this company I started, you know, a lot of people who were opening their first hotel right now thought they were going to be successful and maybe they will be, but it's far from certain, right. uh, which is the nature of the beast. So I wouldn't want to say that, um, that I'm successful yet, but I'm still interested, and I th- I think the the advantage that I have, whether it shows up in my current position or or it's just a long term thing, is thinking about the person who's renting the space, and what their pain points are, and what really matters. Most of my research is about housing that was done in the 18th and 19th century, because they didn't have the affordability issues that we we do now, mm. and I'm studying that really hard because I don't think long-term subsidized housing can really fix our problems. I don't think that um, simply putting in cheaper countertops can fix our problems. And so I'm, I'm studying, you know, history and, and really it's corporate strategy. You're saying, what do people need? What is nobody else doing? Right. That is, you know, and, and, and learning about those things because learning is the only learning faster than the competition is the only sustainable competitive advantage. They can steal what you did, unless you're learning faster than they are and you're already down the road. Right. So I, I think that, that learning and learning quickly, you know, listening to podcasts like this one, that's the, that's the only sustainable competitive advantage. That's a great point. And I get that. I'd say about 50% of the time is the response is somewhere along the lines of continuous learning. Um, right. Always keeping an open mind, just, having a bookshelf <laughs> and right. keeping it stock. And uh, I think your point about getting back to the basics of what is the customer actually looking for. Yes. I think that's valuable and sometimes it's overlooked. I think a lot of times it is mm-hmm. um, a lot of the, you know, this is the way we've done it. This is the way we're going to do it kind of sure. thing. Um, Which is so a risk those, thing. They're trying to manage right. risk. Sure. Sure. That's a good point. But like you said, is it sustainable, you know? Right, um, right. Live a little. Not. <laughs> well, I, I really do appreciate your time. I know oh, yeah, you've got a lot going great. on right now. Yeah. It's been great. But, yeah, uh, I'm amazed at how quickly your episodes are going up. It's uh, <laughs> flying through them. Yeah, I'm trying to, trying to go once a week now. And uh, Man. It's, been, it's been tough. But uh, it's been great, especially when I have people like you on here. It makes it enjoyable. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. (laughs)
Well, right. well I, I, yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll look forward to hearing it, and let's definitely stay in touch. Definitely. I want to let you get back to your family. I know. Yeah. I think I could hear somebody back there. <laughs> Almost certainly. Almost certainly. <laughs> All right. You have a good afternoon. You too. Talk to you soon, Matthew. All right.